You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. So we continue to praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 14 as we continue to make our way through the gospel of John. Adam, that is one of the great contemporary Trinitarian songs, and and today we are in that section of John, which is one of the great Trinitarian texts. It reminds us, even hours before Jesus is about to be crucified, what's on his mind. And what's on his mind is the Godhead for his people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for us and our salvation. We're going to be looking in verses 18 to 24, but for context, if you would look with me in verse 15, passage we looked at last week. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the first of four times we'll see in this passage this term helper, paraclete. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have been summoned by song. To praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Father, today this passage is a means towards that end. So we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would attend to this today. We know that he has come to glorify the Son. And those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. We pray that we could behold you today. In Christ and by your Spirit. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. A couple of years ago, my friend Jeremy and I were, were preaching at a, at a conference, a Bible conference, and, and it was really hot where we were. It was Auburn in August hot, okay? And, and so I took him. He, he, he wanted to, to work out with me, and so we went to this place on a golf cart, and we started doing the workout I had been doing at that time. We were doing bear crawls, uh, burpees. Uh, we were doing big 21, starting with 21 push-ups, 21 sit-ups, all the way down to one. J- jump squats, we were doing sprints. The problem was, we forgot our water. And we got really dehydrated, very weak. And, and so as we're riding the golf cart back, it reminded me of my college days. And I shared that story with him. I said, you know, back uh, when I was playing ball in college... They didn't let us drink water during the workouts. Um, They were trying to prove to us, you don't really need water to exist. (laughs) If you knew my two strength coaches, Rich Wingo and Rocky Colburn, you you would know that is the truth. But we would meet in this lower gym um, basement, if you will, below Coleman Coliseum where the basketball team played. And it was a small basement gym 
And when you walked down there, they would, they would turn the heat on and, and lock the doors. There were garbage cans lined up for emergencies. And, and you would go through 60 minutes, full speed, never stopping of high-intensity exercises. Like for one of the things that we did was bear crawl suicides, where you go from the end line to the free throw line and back. You go to the, uh, the mid-court and back to the other free throw line and back and all the way, bear crawling the entire time. And, and you would do these exercises, monkey rolls and, and burpees and up-downs and all kinds of things, six inches where you're laying on your back and you had to hold your feet for six inches for minutes at a time. For 60 minutes, we would do that. And then we would transition to the Colosseum where we would either run steps or we would run the concourse, the inner concourse that circled the gym. No water. But there, between the transition of lower gym and the Colosseum, there was this small little water fountain. Now, there was a gentleman's agreement if you decided to take your life in your hands and drink from that water fountain, we wouldn't tell the coaches on you. But if you got caught, you'd probably go missing in action, all right? It was a, it was a very dangerous proposition to drink from that water fountain. And so we would go 75 minutes without water, sweating and with all kinds of intensity, coaches yelling in your ear. As I'm sharing this story with Jeremy, he looked at me with kind of a shock. And he said, why would a college student put himself through that? How could an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, put himself through that kind of suffering? And without beating an eye, I looked at him and I said, the promise. The promise. The promise of putting on that jersey in the fall. You see, promises are powerful. Depending on what is promised, or depending on who's making the promise, promises can be the fuel for those who are going through the most troubling of times. Indeed, can be the fuel for those who have the most troubled hearts. And it is the most troubling of times for Jesus' disciples. In fact, their hearts are deeply troubled. This entire chapter begins with, let not your heart be troubled. It ends, verse 27, or towards the end, with the same admonition. Let your hearts not be troubled. Jesus is leaving them. The best man, in fact, the only utterly good man in the history of the world is leaving them. They will never have a, an earthly friend like this man. He is leaving them. And so hours from the cross, Jesus is encouraging them with promises in such a way that every Christian in every age can receive and can apply no matter what your trouble might be. No, we don't have the trouble they had. We've, we've never spent three years with the physical Jesus, okay? But all of us have troubles in this broken and fallen world. And so he gives them promises that will fuel them 
after he is gone. In fact, these are promises for us. And he does this by reminding them why it's important that he goes away. It's actually to their advantage that he goes away. And we've seen over the last previous weeks that one of the reasons it's an advantage that Jesus goes away rather than stay here in physical form is that he's going to prepare a better place for us. A place that's not broken. A place that has no trouble. All right? Um, Unlike this place. Secondly, he's going to make a way to come to that place through the cross. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Third, we see, and we have seen, that he's going away because by going away, he can be the true revelation of all that God is for us. In other words, it takes a cross for us to behold just how just, just how holy, just how righteous God is, but also how gracious and merciful and loving and wise that he is. And then we've seen that he, he's going away so that we can do greater works than even he did. Now, we're not going to raise the dead like Jesus did. But as far as taking that gospel to the ends of the earth, we will do those greater works. And that's because of the fifth promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's going away so that he can send his Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what we see in verse 18 as he continues that thought. Jesus won't leave his disciples as orphans. Because of this gift that he is going to send after his cross and his resurrection. Look with me in verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, let me just say right off the bat here. um, He's preparing his disciples for his departure. And to do this, he employs one of the most painful, most gut-wrenching images that you could ever employ. That of the orphan. What is an orphan? It's someone who, without parental care. It's without parental guidance and direction, accountability and discipline. It's someone who is without parental love. Uh, that, that's what an orphan is. And he, he's inferring here that if we don't have God, that's who we are spiritually. We are spiritual orphans. But here he is promising his disciples and those who would trust in him. This is a promise to every believer that he's not going to leave us as orphans. Russ Moore, when I was teaching at Southern Seminary, was my dean in the early years. And he and his wife, Maria, adopted two precious little baby boys from Russia. Uh, Their names were Sergei and Maxim. He changed their names to Timothy and Benjamin. But we were in the same church, and I remember one night he was preaching, and he, he told this story of when him and Maria went to that Russian orphanage in Russia. And he said when he got there, he heard the creepiest sound he had ever heard. Silence. Utter silence. It was creepy because the room was filled with babies, orphan babies. But the reason they were silent is because babies learn to stop crying if no one attends to them. And then uh, they took uh, Russ and, and Maria to 
their two babies that they were going to adopt, Sergey and Maxim. And they picked these two precious boys up. No crying, no murmuring. And, and so over several days, they would do the same thing. They would pick up these babies. They would love on them. They would read to them silence and silence. And then on the last day, uh, they, they came to say goodbye. They had to go back to the United States to fill out the legal paperwork to come back and adopt them permanently. That was law. They picked up Sergey and Maxim for the last time. Silence. But then they walked out of the room and they uh, went into the hall. And for the first time, they heard this guttural scream. It was Maxim. In some kind of primal way, he knew for the first time he would be heard. All right? And, and so this, this little boy, this, this orphan baby, not even, I don't think, a, two years old, he recognized at some primal level that for the first time he had a father and a mother. All right? That's a glorious thing to adopt, right? But what Jesus is promising here is even better than that. He's promising that because he is going away and because he is going to secure what needs to be secured for us to be legally adopted by the Father by taking the wrath that we deserve on the cross... He is promising not only adoption, he's promising adoption for all eternity, even beyond death. And yes, he's going to come back, and that's what he says here in verse 18. I will come to you. Is that referring to his post-resurrection appearances? He certainly does that, but that's spasmodic. It's here and there, and it's certainly not permanent. Is it referring to his second return? When he comes to consummate what he's inaugurated to fix all the broken things and restore the heavens and the earth to God's original purpose when he created them, the new creation, yes. But in the context, this is referring to the Holy Spirit. He is coming by way of another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. As Paul will write in, in Galatians 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and this gives clarity to the words we're going to see in chapter 16 when he actually says in verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's actually better that you have the helper indwelling you, in other words, than having Jesus walk by your side in the flesh. It says better. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That's how significant this gift is. We, we often minimize the importance of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying it's actually to your advantage that you have the Holy Spirit in you than having Jesus walk alongside you in the flesh. But this isn't true for everyone. 
Notice with me in verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. I think that could refer to certainly the physical Jesus. Because when, he ret- when he's res- raised from the grave, only believers will see him. And only those who will be ultimately converted to him will see him. Like his half-brother James, who was a skeptic prior to the resurrection. He says, but you will see me. And notice this, because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus is going to be raised, he is promising all disciples resurrection life. You might ask, well, how about the Old Testament saints? Were they not raised? Yes, they were. But they were raised on credit. They were raised on what would be put into the spiritual bank later, centuries later, through the finished work of Jesus. We're saved on debit. We're saved on what he has already put into the bank, okay? So there is this promise of life that even the Old Testament saints experience. So what's new about this? Well, he is promising that the Spirit is going to get so indwell every believer that we will actually walk in a kind of life in the Spirit that is akin to resurrection life. Now, remember who he's speaking this to originally. He's speaking it to those who are actually going to be commissioned to take that gospel beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Do you know how horrifying and, and scary that would be? And how impotent they would have been to that task without the life in the Spirit? But when the Spirit would come on them, what does Luke or Acts 1-8 tell us? They would receive power. A resurrection power, Okay. And and in that power, they would become Christ's witnesses. That Greek word is martyrs. Acts 4.31, in fact, would say they would be given boldness. Boldness beyond their capacities. I think sometimes the reason we don't sense that power and boldness is because we don't place ourselves on the front lines as we should for the sake of the gospel. It's those who place themselves in uncomfortable spaces where they're vulnerable, where they really sense the power and the boldness that life in the Spirit offers us, okay? Now think about this. These are the men. One has already betrayed Jesus. Uh, He's already left the room. So there's 11 left. Do you realize that tradition tells us that 10 of these 11 will die for the sake of the gospel? Now, to be willing to die for the sake of the gospel, you have to have some kind of boldness. But the reason they had that boldness, let's go back to our original analogy. There's power in the promises. He says, you will receive life. You will live because I live. And as a result of that, nothing could scare them because they had been promised life by the the Son of God. Now, think about this. In the traditions of the church, we learned that Peter was crucified. He would be crucified in Rome upside down. Andrew would be crucified in Archaea. James, the son of Zebedee, 
would be beheaded by Herod. We read that in Acts, don't we? John would be exiled on the Isle of Patmos. James, the son of Alphaeus, he would be martyred in Egypt. Judas, not Iscariot, we'll see him speaking a little later in the passage, he would be martyred in present day Iran. Philip, he would be martyred in Phrygia. Nathaniel, apparently, tradition tells us he would be flayed and beheaded. Matthew, he would be martyred. Thomas, he would be killed with a spear in probably what is what we know today as India. And then Simon, he would be tortured and he would be sawn in two. And Jesus is saying, because I live, you live. Yes, you will have resurrection life in this life, but you will have life beyond death. They would live. That's the promise. There's power in the promises. Well, notice in verse 20, in that day, that is Pentecost, you will know, you will know experientially that I am in my Father. Now, this is high doctrine. And, and sometimes it's easy to skip over this. But again, remember, he's just hours from the cross. This is important to Jesus, which means it must be important to us. You know, God is incomprehensible, but he's knowable. We need to keep that tension as we read this. In that day, you will know that I'm in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, he's already spoken about this, what we call the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. All the way back in chapter 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? Verse 11, believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. This means at least a couple of things. It means more than that, I'm sure. First of all, the three persons of the Trinity, we sang about them earlier, are fully in one another. Okay? Second, each person of the Godhead is in full possession of the divine nature. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. They are distinct persons, but there is one God. You go, that math doesn't add up. Well, your math is finite, and you're, we're dealing here with an infinite God. He's infinite. There's, there's no analogy in this finite world that can even scratch the surface of who this God is. With that said... We've been looking at this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. It's been used only of the Godhead till now. You got to get that right first. But now it's extended to the disciples, which is remarkable. They, that is every believer, would enjoy and experience the mutual indwelling of the Son. And we're going to see in a moment also of the Father. And of the Spirit. Of course, we need to be very careful here. We don't become gods. And we don't become part of God. The, the Trinity's mutual indwelling is by nature. Okay? And it's eternal. Ours is by grace. Our indwelling in the Godhead, God in us, 
is by grace through faith in Jesus. But the reality of being in the Godhead, which is beyond our comprehension, is utterly remarkable. And it should be remarkable to us. That's what Jesus is speaking about just hours from the cross. In other words, the life of God is produced in our lives. That's the normal Christian life. And the first mark of that divine life produced through us is love. He's already spoken a great deal about love, cruciform love. We see it again here in verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to them. Now, this of course does not mean that Jesus starts loving us once we start loving him. If that's the case, we're in a world of, of hurt. Sergey and Maxim didn't start loving Russ Moore first. It started with Russ Moore and Maria Moore's love for them. He's going to say in chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. All right? The Father's love is not responsive love. It's not reactive love. It's not passive love, right? And that's why we love the song, as simple as it may seem. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. There was a great theologian in the 20th century who was asked, what is the greatest theological truth that you have learned in all of your studies. And he sang that song, Jesus loves me, this I know. It reminds me of a, a tremendous anecdote about these Christians in communist China when persecution was at its height. And there's still persecution in China. And they would correspond to one another, but they, but they knew there were censors. And so this particular letter, here's what the, the Christian wrote to another Christian. He said, tell them, that is friends and brothers, that the this I know people are doing well. They knew the censors wouldn't catch that. The this I know people are the people that Jesus loves. This I know. Indeed, the love of God produces our love for him. It's not reactionary to our love for him. So what does this mean here? I mean, actually, we know that God's love is proactive and precedes our love. God so loved the world, right? He gave his only begotten son. We love God because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. So what does this mean? Well, I think the way we understand this is to consider a distinction that used to be made and I think a lot of times this distinction isn't made as much uh, anymore because there's one of these terms has been redefined in our culture. But to make the distinction between God's love of compassion and God's love of complacency. Now, let, I'll come back to that in just a moment. What is God's love of compassion? It's coming to his enemies and loving us even when we're in our rebellious state. Paul says in Romans 5, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love of compassion. But then there's God's love of complacency. Again, that term complacency today means lethargic. It means passive. It means indifferent. But when this distinction was made, that's not what the word meant. It just simply means that God delights. He delights in the love and the obedience of his people. God's love of complacency. He takes pleasure in our love for him. He takes pleasure in our obedience. And get this. As a result, he blesses our obedience. Now, in a very real sense, he's, he's just crowning his own grace. Like when my children were really young and they would borrow money to buy me a Christmas gift, right? <laughs> our, our obedience and our, our, our love for God, is, they're just trophies of grace. But in a very real sense, he delights in that. Just like we delight in the gifts of our children. He delights in us and he blesses that. And notice the chief blessing here is that Jesus manifests himself to such a one. I will love him and manifest myself to him. This word manifest refers to display divine glory to. In other words, the more we love him, the more we obey him, and that, that's kind of like a dimmer switch. It's not either, it's not an off-on switch, it's a dimmer switch. I mean, we, we can grow in our love, we can grow in our obedience. The more we behold Christ, that, that is the promise. That is a chief blessing for those who love him. Those who don't see Christ, those who don't feel Christ, is because they're not loving him. It's because they're not obeying him. Now, let me speak to this word manifest just for a moment because it's reared its head today, especially on social media and in various outlets. There was a movement that really arose after the Civil War and it appeared to die down, but now it is, it is growing in strength. And it's this idea that by my thoughts and my words, I can manifest reality. Maybe you've heard that, all right? Well, let me just say it's paganism because it makes you omnipotent. It makes you God, all right? And so if I think positively about something, I can affect it to happen. If I think negatively about something, I can affect it to happen. Now, we all recognize if, you have, if you're a positive person, you tend to have a positive experience in life. If you're a negative person, you tend to have a, a negative experience in life. But this is not what this is talking about. This, this, this movement is called new thought or, or mind power or mental magic. Those are various terms for this movement. You actually affect what you think about. When Heather was singing in her group, they went to a a famous preacher's church. I won't say his name. And uh, he, she recognized quickly they shouldn't have gone because he was talking about this plant that he loved in his house. And 
he was thinking about, what if this plant died? I would really be so sad. And the next day he woke up and the plant was dead. Well, that's what we're talking about here, manifesting things. You can't manifest anything. You're not God. That is magic. That is paganism. The, in the scripture, the only one who manifests anything is God himself. And here's what God has promised in Jesus. If you love him, if you obey him, he will manifest himself to you. But how will he do that? Well, in verses 21 to 24, Jesus will mention, he will reference his, his word four times. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments. Verse 23, anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. That's how Jesus manifests himself. As we open his word and we meditate on it and read it, God the Spirit gives us eyes to behold the Christ. He manifests himself to us. It's a very important promise. But at this point, one of the 11 interrupts him. We see this throughout this account. I think this is the third time he's been interrupted. We saw Thomas interrupted him. Philip interrupted him. And now we have another interruption. But it's providential. Because with that interruption, Jesus gives them another promise. Notice with me in verse 22. We've seen that Jesus won't leave them orphans. And now we see that Jesus will not leave them homeless. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, this is probably Thaddeus, by the way. You'll see that name used in other gospels. He said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, it's interesting that Jesus really doesn't answer the question, at least not directly. He has manifested himself to the world through his works and all it did was harden them in their sin and rebellion. So he responds this way in verse 23. He says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me. Going back to that, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, just a trivia point here, but it's an important trivia point. This is the only place in the Bible where it is said that the Father and the Son are said to indwell the believer. But you only need one verse. It's this one. Jesus is promising those who love the Lord Jesus and obey him and keep his word, he has promised that the Father and the Son would indwell them. Of course, we know that is by the Holy Spirit. But it's also interesting, this word home. He says, I we will make our home with him. You know, we've already seen that word. It's not translated that, but it's the same Greek word, mone. We saw it in chapter 14, verse 2, just a few verses earlier. Let's go back to verse 2. You can just flip over in your Bible. In my father's house 
are many rooms. That's the same word. It's the same word. And so, we have seen that the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He's the helper. Four times in John. In 1 John, we learned that Jesus is a paraclete as well. All right? Uh, we have an advocate to the Father. We have a paraclete to the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so, these two texts are related. As our paraclete, Jesus, the Son of God, goes and prepares a home for us for his people in the presence of the Father. All right? He's doing that by his cross. He's going to make us fit to be in the presence of God by his atoning work on the cross. But here, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, comes and makes a home for the Father and the Son in the believer. Remarkable promises. Remember, he's speaking to the troubled heart. Let not your heart be troubled. These are remarkable promises. Indeed, and I think Sinclair Ferguson is correct here in his book on the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are being depicted as homemakers. Now, you think about a housewife. If she were filling out a, some kind of application and it said occupation, she might say housewife. And that would describe where she resides and it would describe who she is to a certain degree. She's a wife. But maybe a better word would be homemaker because that term describes what she does in a thousand different ways. A homemaker transforms a house into a home, okay? The Lord Jesus Christ is a homemaker. He's going to prepare a place for us. And the Holy Spirit is a homemaker. He's coming to us to prepare a place for God. So not only does Jesus make us fit to dwell in God's presence in heaven by transforming us, he's also transforming us from the inside out so that when God might look at the son, he might say, you know, I feel at home in this person. Don't you? That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. But it also helps explain why the Christian life is filled with troubles and it's filled with trials and it's filled with difficulties because when God the Spirit takes up residence in us, we're broken down houses. We're broken. That's why we needed Jesus. We're dysfunctional. And, and so what the Spirit does for those who trust in the Son, he, he indwells us and begins to do a work of renovation so that the Father and the Son will be comfortable where they reside. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, Imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. He's talking about when you're first converted, there's some evident things that need fixing immediately. But then you learn later there's some other things that need fixing as well. He knew that those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way 
that hurts abominably. And he does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's the promise that Jesus is making here. And so Jesus is not going to leave them as orphans. And he's not going to leave them homeless. But he's not going to allow our homes in which he dwells to remain broken down. They will be renovated. That's one of the reasons we have troubled hearts. With that said, as we come to a close, the passage ends on an ominous note. Look with me in verse 14, or 24 rather. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That's the person who's not only disobedient, but they're indifferent to the word of God. The word of God is lifeless to them. It's just ink on a page. And the word that you hear is not mine. It originated from the Father. But the Father who sent me. And so if you're not a believer here this morning, this verse is for you. All these other verses are for the believer. But this is a verse for you. Your, your indifference to his word, your indifference to his gospel, your indifference to his commands reveals a calloused heart that may be covered up by morality. That's one of the most dangerous places to be. A, a moral person who uses their morality as a masking agent to hide their dependency on God. Will you not seek him today? By hearing this word, you are being invited for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell you by receiving Jesus and what he did on the cross. Because on the cross, he took our judgment that we deserve. And you know, you know your thoughts, you know your words, you know your motivations, you know how sinful you are. And deep down, you know they deserve judgment. And here's what Jesus did. He took the judgment. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table, in fact. I want you to think about this. Because Jesus went away, because he went away and he died on the cross, um, he, he transformed, okay, a, a criminal case into an adoption ceremony in the law court of God. That's what he did. Because he went away, because he took the cross, because he was raised, he transformed in the divine heavenly courtroom this criminal case into an adoption ceremony for those who believe. And that's what the supper reminds us of. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.